Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. Today's episode is brought to you by Lily CBD. Today's guest is Lars May, who based on her experience with anxiety and depression and her relationship with social media, made it her life mission to help people navigate their mental health and technology consumption through her nonprofit, Half the Story. Welcome, Lars. Thanks for having me, Harper. I remember, I feel like we met in person, you know, one of the first weeks I moved to New York, which feels like another life ago now. Uh, So it's very cool to be here on the other side (laughs) on podcast life in this crazy year we call 2020. Oh my God, it's such an insane year, such an insane year that none of us could have possibly predicted. So tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. So my name is Larissa May. Most people know me as Lars. I prefer Lars because I think it fits my personality a bit more. Um, I am from the western suburbs in Chicago, and I am the executive director of a nonprofit called Half the Story. And we're on a mission to help the next generation develop healthier relationships with technology from the start. Love it. Can't wait to talk more about Half the Story. So let's take it back a little bit. At what age did you first become aware that you had depression and anxiety? It's interesting because there's a difference between being aware and really having the knowledge to understand. And I first became aware, you know, just through my senses and listening to my body and my mind and my heart when I was 16. And I remember so vividly having, you know, periods of just anxiety where I literally could not breathe and I had to lay flat in my bed for 10 minutes to catch my breath so that I could go back to studying again, which was, of course, not normal. Um, and I also you know, remember during that time having periods of just despair and crying and feeling on edge 24-7 and thinking that that was normal. Um, and it was just a form of stress. I remember like taking a photo crying with my AP US history book on photo booth. I like wish I could still get into that old MacBook. And, you know, I didn't really know what was going on, but I did have feelings of wishing that, you know, and this might be triggering from some people. Um, so if you're listening, trigger, but I did have feelings of that I did not want to live. And, you know, I thought that death was an option. And that was something that was not normal. But at the time, I was really sick and didn't know what to do with it. But yes, I was aware that this was probably happening and and not normal. But I just kind of kept living through it. So did at any point you seek treatment? So I actually did not in high school. I worked through it really on my own. You know, I think people saw what was happening around me, but they didn't really know how to handle it. And quite frankly, neither did I. I was 16 years old. And so I kind of just somehow made it through and got into college and everything kind of started to get better from there until it didn't when it hit again and I was in college. And that was when I was able to, you know, really maybe not myself 
know what to do, but I had people around me that knew what to do and the support system on campus to to take care of what was going on and, you know, have an RA who was a med school student and saw that I was really struggling and walked me over to the psychological center on campus. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by you were really struggling? What did that look like or feel like? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, struggling, I think sometimes it's invisible and other times it's very visible. And what was interesting about that period of struggling for me is that it was very invisible to half the world and very visible to the other. Um, It was invisible to the virtual world and visible to my roommate and to the people that were in front of me and actually connecting with me on a daily basis. I was at that time really passionate about the fashion industry and wanted to be a fashion blogger and saw, you know, that is my way into the entertainment world. And it was social media was kind of a fast track for connecting and creating and getting really fantastic opportunities, which, you know, have changed my life and have put me in a place and gave me an opportunity in New York that I wouldn't have had without it. But, you know, when I was struggling, what that ultimately meant is that, you know, I was feeling very dark. I was feeling very lonely. I was feeling very overwhelmed, uh, biting off more than I could chew as a full-time student and also full-time entrepreneur and trying to have a full-time social life. And, you know, I think that's a pattern that, that I'm constantly learning how to reset, but I was in bed for two weeks and, you know, had feelings of the same feelings that I had when I was 16. Um, I was, crying every day, all day. Uh, I remember my room was just like so messy and my roommate was super type A and she was my best friend from freshman year. And she just didn't know what to do with me. Like I didn't want to go out. I didn't want to go to class. And like that's coming from someone who's never taken a sick day in their entire life. And she left me to move into another girl's dorm room and I was just alone. It was me, my screen and an empty bed that I stared at across my room And I just got more into social media because I didn't have anything else to do. And, you know, it was like this fake world. And therefore, no one really that wasn't on campus knew I was struggling uh, because the story I was sharing was so different from the one I was living. And that was really it. And then I came to this moment of, you know, it was this woman in my hall that came in and was like, you know, Lars, I'm really worried about you. You're someone that always has been super peppy and type A and you know, everyone always has loved you. And it doesn't seem like you're loving yourself right now. And I'm really concerned. And, you know, we need to find a path forward. And I walked over to the psychological center and, you know, basically started to understand that these reoccurring things were not something that was just going to go away. You don't just give someone an antibiotic, you know, when it comes to chronic illnesses and, you know, having chronic depression, and anxiety is something that you live with for the rest of your life. And I I don't think I really knew what that meant at that point. But that was the beginning of my journey. And I kind of knew it wasn't going to be the end. I think it's really interesting to hear the concept of identifying that, you know, an antibiotic is not going to heal you. It's not the flu or a band-aid that's going to heal a wound. Like, this is an ongoing thing that you need to process and live with. So what were those tools that you started to utilize in your life in order to navigate life with this? You know, the tools that I started with, I feel like have changed so much because when I was in college, even though I was very busy, there was just like a sense of more freedom when it came to time. And 
I learned that for me, you know, physical activity was something that I really tried to do on a daily basis. Um, the second was journaling and being able to write affirmations to myself, you know, just something that I was in control of on a daily basis so that I could really reinforce that positive mindset, even on challenging days. Um, the third was therapy, um, you know, having a sort of a third party that I could go speak to every week and really talk about what I was going through so that when my health was good, I had support. And when my health wasn't good, I had support. Because one of the things that I found in my own mental health journey and I find with other people is that it's really challenging to get help when you need it the most. It's a lot easier to get help when you're doing okay. But when things start to go south, it's very challenging because it requires motivation and coordination. And it's not as easy as just making a doctor appointment where you kind of show up and they might or might not take your insurance. Mental health is very expensive. Therapy is very expensive. So it can take, you know, and, and I've even had this problem when I moved to New York. Like I remember I called five therapists. None of them took my insurance. And of course, now there are other newer startups like Find My Wellbeing, which is a great therapy matchmaking service that specializes in New York. But, you know, after calling five therapists when I was depressed as hell, I was not interested in that pursuit that day for much longer. Like I had exhausted myself emotionally. And so I think that's the biggest thing is like, you need to take care of yourself before it gets too late. And that's something that I feel like I'm just, you know, even physically, I also had gone through a, a year of having mono in New York and now I have autoimmune issues and like all of these things in our life. Like we think that there's a point at which something will happen and then you will, you know, deal with it. But what we've learned or what I've learned is that 70% of the things that happen to us are oftentimes preventative. And that goes for physical health and that goes for mental health. Of course, there are you know going to be discrepancies and there are many different factors, but our society just needs to get better at taking care of ourselves. And that means our bodies and our minds and our relationships. I really, really, really appreciate you acknowledging that fact of the importance of seeking help not just in the worst of times. And that therapy thing that you acknowledge, I experienced that with a friend of mine who was going through a bit of a crisis last year. And I had suggested that she find a therapist and everyone she reached out to, similar to you talking about exploring yeah. you know, different people. She just was like, I don't like this person. This person didn't call me back. This happened. And she was just sort of defeated that made her not want to pursue working with the therapist. Oh, yeah. And now she's in a really good place. And the things that were going on last year have definitely subsided. And I said to her, I'm just going to throw this out there again to you. It's been a year. I think that it could be valuable to explore this now so that when and if there is a time that things are rocky, you already have this person in place. Absolutely. Another thing that goes along with that with therapy is that I know that I, I have been through this of oh, I don't need to have a session this week because I have nothing to talk about. Yeah, And I remember like two years ago when I was in therapy, realizing how valuable those sessions were that I went in going, I have no freaking clue what I'm going to talk about. And I come out like hysterically crying and so glad I went. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's the thing is sometimes when there's not a problem, at least on the surface, it actually causes you to dig a little bit deeper. And even in these months, you know, now, I mean, look, we're starting to see 
that there's a lot that's happening in the mental health space. And I think it's really wonderful, but you know, mental health is still not accessible. And that's why I do think it's important. Like, look, I've had so many times in my adult life where money was tight and I needed therapy, but you know what? Like I actually had to cut it because I couldn't afford it. And that was the reality. And that's, you know, this is coming from someone who's even working in the mental health space. And I'm okay with saying that because they think that oftentimes just because you're a mental health advocate, just because you run a mental health nonprofit doesn't mean that like you have everything figured out. And it doesn't mean that, you know, you're not still on your own journey. And I think we just need to do a much better job with it. We also need to, I think the role, I mean, my whole life is really now dedicated to understanding the intersection between emotional health and technology. And I think that technology has done so much for us in reducing stigma around these things. But, you know, there's also this like glamorization of mental health in a way that I think our culture is sort of in right now where, you know, even for Gen Zs, which is like the people that we work with, it's almost cool to be anxious and depressed. And like, that's not cool. Like, it's good to talk about it. And it's good to create awareness. But we need to not memify mental health in a way that has a potential to hurt us in the long term. I absolutely agree with that. It's such an interesting point that really hasn't been addressed here. So I'm glad that you're bringing it up. Can you talk about the sequence of events that led you to found half the story and what exactly half the story is for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for me, when I was sitting and alone and listening and watching and observing, because that's just where I was when I was very isolated, I had a wake up call. And it was sort of this reality check of, wow, like, I am not sharing the real truth of what's going on in my life. I am seeing how social media and technology is affecting so many of my peers on campus. And I'm also understanding how it's actually amplifying my own experience with loneliness and anxiety and depression. And I just started kind of like making note of the way I was feeling when I was on technology and what I was using it for. And what I realized was that, you know, in that week of time that I monitored myself, 70% of the time that I I was on my phone was not for anything intentional. There was no purpose. And almost, you know, 70% of those circumstances, I left feeling less than. And I really started to see that I think there is a way that you know, kids are getting phones before they even know how to read, but they're not being taught how to have a healthy relationship with their phone in the way that the majority of kids, and of course, there are discrepancies in different situations, you know, are being taught to have a positive relationship with food. Like we need to start equating technology. I mean, technology is the lifeline of our generation. We need it to live, um, we need it to survive, and we need it to thrive, but we need to have a healthy relationship with it. And so, you know, my first step in doing that was by sharing the other half of my story and shutting my fashion blog down, which was just my open and honest journey after I got support. And it was like, this is the story you guys have seen, but this is the one that's really like what's going on. And that was actually the most authentic post that I ever did. And I started getting stories from young people all over the world and basically spent my first year speaking to young people in different languages and understanding how these platforms were affecting them. And what I realized is that you know, 90% of the kids that I'd worked with or spoken with or surveyed wanted to develop a healthier relationship with technology. And that 70% of them felt like they didn't have control of the way it made them feel or the way that they controlled it. And so I saw that there was an opportunity to really create a nonprofit that was really youth led 
and a nonprofit that, you know, would help kids develop these healthy relationships with technology in a fun and interesting way. And that was really the birth of half the story. About a year and a half ago, we got nonprofit status and we did a pilot program with 38 schools. We produced a play, we produced a film. And now last month, we actually launched the Global Day of Unplugging. And so now in this next chapter, we're really aggressively fundraising to build a couple of different tools and a more cohesive platform for our educational program because you know the relationship with our technology has never been more complicated but never been more important and i believe that we have to teach kids how to reconnect with themselves and how to prioritize you know the things in the hierarchy of needs above technology because right now tech is taking the front seat how are you teaching kids you mentioned the documentary and the play, what specifically is happening in those mediums that is educating kids? So we do a couple of things. So one is a a peer-led program with our different youth ambassadors. So basically, we work and create sort of a, a small curriculum in different languages with tips and tools for kids on things that they can do, like small hacks to take back control of their tech and their life. Um, in the school program that we did, we developed and distributed the curriculum to 38 different schools. But now in the COVID era, uh, we're actually creating like a hybrid program, which is partial web, partial in real life with social media accountability groups to sort of talk about the issues that kids are having from cyberbullying to just dealing with the way that social media platforms are making them feel. And that's a platform that we're working on and currently fundraising for and hopes to launch really in the beginning of next year. What does this all look like given the current pandemic and the fact that people are more tied to their computers and phones and social media than ever before? You know, the rules have really been rewritten. Uh, We did a program with NAMI NYC in the beginning of the pandemic. Here I was stressed out that we were not going to meet our May 1st deadline because the pandemic was going to be over and people weren't going to be in their houses anymore. Um, But now I'm laughing at myself because, yes, we met the deadline, but, you know, we're going to be in this for a much while longer. But, um, you know, basically the whole program was really about, you know, how parents can help foster healthier relationships during this time. And I think the first thing is, you know, you have to take guilt out of it. It's really like anything, right? Like, it's not about what are you doing? It's about why are you doing it? And, you know, right now, screens are really becoming coping mechanisms for a lot of us. They're also a huge coping mechanism for young people. And within the program that we created, specifically the one that was geared towards parents, It's really about helping them, you know, create healthy boundaries, but also tap into empathy as a way to actually collectively create these boundaries with their families. Because a lot of people are feeling alone, even though they're surrounded by people all the time. And then from there, sort of, you know, behavior-based skills and things, you know, like uh, Grayscale, even just like digitally cleaning up your phone, like getting rid of all the things that you don't actually need, like kind of taking them through that process as a collective unit so that it doesn't feel like they're being controlled by their notifications in their phone at all times. So we've never said technology is evil. In fact, I think that it's easier to run away from things than it is to confront them. Um, And we really hope that kids, you know, don't sort of live in this fight or flight mode, but can really feel like they have the ability to say no to going on their phones or feel like they can make the space to connect with their own emotions. Because from what the data is telling us, the next generation's EQ is actually lower, their empathy 
than any other generation to date. So we really want to help them develop those skills and in the process, you know, be able to have a better relationship with their technology. How are you connecting with kids at these younger ages that are obviously very connected to their phones other than through their schools, given that they're probably using social media to learn about stuff? That's a really great question. A lot of our story squad members are inbound. So a lot of them have just started by sharing their stories. Like we have Sharita, who's an amazing young woman in Uganda and organized her whole local like neighborhood to participate in the global day of unplugging. And, you know, I got connected to her just through social media and like, that is the beauty of it. Um, And right now we're actually working to kind of scale that network of young people because we're interested in going more into the research side of technology and, you know, the emotional health component and being able to work with more young people all over the world. Because what we find is that although their scenarios might be very different, like the woman in Uganda versus a young transgender individual in the middle of Iowa, although their experiences are so different, they still have the same pressures and the same things that social media creates. And so this is really a universal mental health is a nonpartisan issue. Everyone has it. You know, yes, of course, there should be more treatment and there should be all of these things. But like, we need to start looking at humans as humans and start treating mental health that way. And so I think that the more we can reduce the stigma, that's great. But now we need to really start moving into the solution mindset. And the solutions, I believe, in order to get kids to cooperate are not going to come from parents. They're not going to come from psychologists. They're going to come from kids working with us to tell us how they are going to react. Because clearly, these kids have a massive amount of power when it comes to creating engaging content and things that you know young people care about you just look at tiktok right so if we can take their thought processes and what actually interests them and bring that into the solutions that we design which is the approach that we are working on taking you know then we'll be in what i believe is a much better place what have the results been like from the kids that you're working with i mean i think the big thing here is that this is an ongoing challenge this is not yeah. like okay, cool. You learn about this. You watch this play, you hear you speak. And like, all of a sudden they just have it all together. They know how to manage it and create boundaries. So it's an ongoing thing, but what is like a success story mean to you? A success story to me is, you know, I think in the smallest of ways is someone that can become a digital wellness advocate within their own community, like a young individual that's able to actually say, Hey, like, making these decisions have changed my life. Now, like, I want you to participate in this so that it can help change yours too, and actually kind of create that change. So the young individuals and our ambassadors and our communities that are doing that, from a long-term perspective, and you know, this is why we actually want to get into more of the research side, especially as we're developing some of these greater programs, like success to me is being able to really rewire kids' brains and decision-making abilities so that they have the choice of whether or not they're going to go on their phone and that it doesn't feel like it's something that they're addicted to or that they're just doing, but like they're very intentional about it. And that in the long term, we're not just reducing screen time, because to me, like that's the easy way out. You know, that's just one thing. But if we're able to show that, yes, they're taking control of their technology, but more importantly, 
improving their overall emotional well-being, like that is where I would say we win because we are really looking at emotional health, mental health as it interconnects with technology. It's not just um, they're not isolated issues in our mind. We're really thinking about how they come together, how they interact, how one helps the other or how one hurts the other. I love this idea of digital wellness. And I think it's so important to acknowledge what you said previously of kids are going to hear this from their peers. They're not going to listen to their parents or their teachers. It's just coming from a totally different angle. And they need to sort of see that other people are doing it and the value of it. Absolutely. What does managing your mental health look like these days, especially during the pandemic? I recently made the move to a ranch in Northern California. And people looked at me like I was crazy when I was leaving New York because I've always been a New Yorker. You know, even as a young person, I wanted to live there since I was 13. But the pandemic was really challenging for me. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Lily CBD. Lily CBD is organically grown and an everyday essential to help you feel alive. Russell Marcus was a guest on episode 51 of the show and spoke about the value that CBD had on his mom's health while managing chronic pain. Over the last year, I've been regularly using Lily CBD at night, shortly before I go to bed to calm my nerves, and I see that it really helps relax me. I even love the taste. Head to lilycbd.com and use code MADEVISIBLE, one word, at checkout for 15% off. That's lilycbd.com, code MADEVISIBLE, one word, at checkout for 15% off. Now, back to the show. I'm an extrovert, and I was spending my life in my New York City apartment. My personality which is very free-spirited and very social, did not do well in a box in my apartment. And it was very challenging. I was struggling a lot mentally. You know, looking back at it, I was just like taking steps back. And I actually had sort of the wake-up call after the Global Day of Unplugging that I really was not able to move forward. And I was hitting these major roadblocks in the work that I was doing and in fundraising and of course, because of COVID, but you know, just in general, it was a wake up call to me that like I was starting to not practice what I was preaching by where I was at. And I needed to reset and I needed to kind of write a new story for myself, which is something that I think we have to do a lot of times in our life. And that sort of has led me to Northern California, where I've been able to take the past, you know, month and a half or so to go to Parsley Health and get back into taking care of my wellness and my autoimmune issues and my mental health and just have a restart. And it's been liberating. I feel like I was very frantic during COVID, just being in New York with the energy and people, you know, stocking up on toilet paper and canned beans and then trying to do all these things. It was just, it's just been such a wake up call that like, you don't need to have it all figured out by the time you're 26 years old, like life is long. And it can be really short if you don't put yourself first. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely true. What is your relationship with technology and social media these days? I feel very happy about my relationship with technology, because I think that I've been able to find a voice in a very authentic way about the journey that I've sort of been going on and the journey that I'm taking during this time. But I definitely am struggling with 
the virtual meetings. I am such a people person and I've actually opted out of video meetings unless they're for fundraising or for, you know, something really important just because I'm seeing that screen fatigue is so real and that it really, really takes a lot of energy from me. So I've really limited that. I also have been wearing my blue light glasses religiously every day. I have it built into my actual glasses. So I don't even wear contacts anymore because I just know I need to have that blue light protection. Uh, But I've also, you know, really focused on eliminating distractions and really not multitasking. So focusing on one thing at a time, making lists of all the things I want to accomplish in a day and and knowing that if I don't get to it, it's more about setting myself up for success rather than trying to do too much, which I think is the difference between my old life and my new life, <laughs> pre-COVID and post-COVID. That's huge. The new Lars. Yeah, it feels good. Like It feels like a little bit more just grounded. And I think everyone is working hard always. And I feel very grateful that I've been able to like put a lot in and, and be able to be in a position now where... It's more about moving the right chess pieces rather than like running down 50 avenues at once. <laughs> yeah, I think that is the benefit of this time, as we were saying before we started recording, of the slowing down and observing and reevaluating and figuring out how we want to live our lives and if the way that we are currently living is sustainable and what we really want to be doing. And I think everyone in the world is sort of going through that in their own ways of changing careers, staying in careers, moving, and just sort of reevaluating their life decisions. So it's really fascinating to see how this all is playing out for people. Oh, yeah. How can people who aren't currently managing their mental health issues support those who are? You had this TA who identified that you needed help and that it was necessary to get you some sort of support. How do you think, you know, people can identify that and what they can do for other people? I think that's one thing that we think about a lot. And and we're actually working on a series right now in collaboration with one of our therapists at Half the Story on how to have this conversation in real life, but to also like recognize if people are struggling based on their social media behavior or digital (laughs) etiquette, because now we're sort of living in this time where We're not seeing people as much, uh, which is kind of challenging. But I think the first step to if you notice that someone is struggling, and it's very interesting because there's a difference between someone struggling and someone in crisis. And I've dealt with both. You know, someone that's struggling is someone that you see that is going downhill. Someone that is exhibiting signs of withdrawal, perhaps is not eating like normally, not sleeping, like not doing the things that humans really need to sustain themselves on a daily basis and perhaps kind of falling behind in the things they're usually on top of. So you can start to see that decline. Oftentimes it's invisible, but oftentimes it can be very visible and you can see it in their eyes. Uh, When someone starting to decline, the best thing that you can do is not try to go into the situation and, you know, try to come with a bunch of solutions out of the gate and present them because it can be very overwhelming. I find that the best way to 
have this conversation is, you know, really through this model called VAR that Active Minds has created. And the first is sort of validating if they open up to you, validating what they're saying, appreciating that and and really understanding that and empathizing it and then, you know, referring them to places where they can get support. But what I've found is that in order to really get people to open up, you have to open up yourself and you have to be able to not just take and ask, but you have to be willing to give and you need to be willing to ask the right questions. In some days it might be, you know, how is your mental health doing? Like I'm concerned about you, which goes back to have these conversations before things are tough with your friends often, because that way when it is tough, it doesn't feel weird that you're asking these questions. Um, The second thing is being able to say, Hey, like I'm noticing this and I'm concerned and you know, I have dealt with my own struggles and I just want to have a conversation with you to see how I can support you on this journey. There are a number of things that have worked for me and that haven't. And, you know, I just want to make sure that you have what you need because this is a really hard time and this is a collective trauma. And then there's people that are in serious crisis. And, you know, these are individuals who might be having a real break and, I've tried to manage this type of crisis from across the country. And it was as someone who has been in the mental health space, I still think is one of the most terrifying and challenging thing that no one talks about. No one really talks about what to do when someone is at the ledge or what to do when someone is saying things and makes no sense. And you're just confused. And you know, what I did in that situation is that I found people that were there to go and support that person until they were stable and, you know, simultaneously had a conversation with my friend's parents and directed them and said, you know, this is a health emergency. If your daughter or son were to be having a heart attack, you would take them to the ER because their life would be at risk. And I'm telling you that based on these things, like this is a mental health emergency. And here are three places that you can go to two of them take emergency visits. The other is sort of an appointment only, but I highly suggest that you go down this path. And if it's a friend yourself, like going to support them because we don't have a mental health 911. I mean, we have crisis text line, which is great. And sometimes they can send people if you're really in crisis, but you know, someone just should not be alone if you think that they are really, really in trouble. And we just need to talk more about the times in which we've helped people because I still think that people don't know what to do. Like I barely knew what to do because I wasn't there and I was, you know, trying to navigate that. Yeah. It's like we assume that by calling 911, a police officer is going to make the situation better and they're not necessarily trained in mental health and knowing how to navigate this stuff. So I think it's sort of an interesting time right now that we're living in and acknowledging all that's going on with the police in having systems set up for people to get the help that they actually need and it be ready and accessible and available to them. I think that's really, really important. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, (laughs) we're starting to see that our mental health crisis is, it's front and center right now. And I think, you know, that's the hope is that there's a lot of good work to do and we have a lot of progress. I think there's a lot of pain, but we also need to recognize that we are more ahead than really virtually any other country when it comes to like mental health stigma. And I know that from the work that we do with young people and we need to really collectively as a world combine forces and and share and brainstorm and build and, and just think because 
without mental health, you have nothing, you know, you just have nothing. And I, I think we forget that. So I'm looking forward to a future where the world starts prioritizing that, where workplaces start prioritizing that, and where managers are approving of mental health days and having these really challenging dialogues because we're humans. Like all of these things and these badges that we wear every day, whatever, founder, accountant, banker, this, that, and the other, like none of that matters when we're hurting. And no one's calling you a banker when you're having a mental health crisis. You're a human. And we just, we got to get back to that. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the U.S. component because I will say that I interviewed Jody Carice on episode 14, which feels like a lifetime ago, who is the founder of The Self Space, which is a therapy practice in London. Yeah, And I discovered it physically by walking down the street and seeing this beautiful storefront and was like, what is this place? Did some Googling, checked Instagram, and discovered that it was a therapy office that just had the most amazing, welcoming, bright, and inviting branding. And it just totally sort of shifted the stigma of this like sterile office for a therapy office. And I interviewed her, you know, again, episode 14, and just sort of recognizing that it can be accessible and available to people and doesn't need to be stigmatized because mental health needs to be a priority and we need to focus on giving people the treatment that they need. Absolutely. So what's next for you and for half the story? Quickly, I wanted to respond to what you had to say there because I think it's interesting and it's actually through the work that I've done that I've learned sort of about this. So for example, in London, you know, they have public, they have the NHS and what's really interesting is that, and I don't know what the solution is here, but like, for example, if you have an eating disorder, you can potentially be on a wait list for two years before you're seen by someone to get treatment. Oh. And by that point, you're kind of in trouble. So now what's happening is people in the UK that have money are sending their families to America to get treatment. But the majority of people in the UK that need treatment are just not being seen. And so you know, it's challenging. Self-space is actually amazing. Um, and there are a couple of American companies like this. But, you know, I think there's so many arguments and I don't know what the right system is for healthcare. But what I do know is that if someone can't get out of the bed, whether it's physical or mental, like they have no chance of even showing up to perform. And we need to fix that. But in terms of next steps for half the story, back to that question, the next steps on this journey for half the story, I'm really focusing on fundraising over the next six months so that we can bring our programs to life in a really robust way and be able to hire more individuals on our team to really build this mission and blaze forward. I also have a, a vision and a dream to start creating youth lobbyist groups once you know we can lobby in person again and start having kids showing up for their own mental health on Capitol Hill because there are just not systems in place and there is no checks and balance with these tech companies. And the decisions that they're making have the potential to really hurt our youth in the future. And we need to do better. We need to have more resources for kids as it relates to getting in healthier relationships with technology in a way that's really interesting. And I believe that half the story is here to really carry that torch and Although this is a challenging time for many people, I think the future for mental health is bright and it's really our duty to 
band with youth and create as large of a community as possible so that we can cultivate change. Thank you for doing all that you do for the community and really in general of just educating people on the importance of having a better relationship with technology and managing your mental health. Where can people learn more about you and join the community of Half the Story? You can learn more about Half the Story at halfthestoryproject.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at Half the Story for good tech life balance tips. And you can always shoot me a note at livinglikelars.com if you want to connect with me personally and, you know, want to talk about the future of technology and mental health, which is my favorite topic. But I'm so grateful. This is so interesting. Such a great conversation with you, Harper. Not surprised in the slightest. And I'm grateful that we were able to create more awareness around, you know, the invisible struggle that I think we're all facing right now, uh, which is our relationship with technology. Yes. Love it. Thank you so much, Lars. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Grisillo for the design.